Hosea is a stunning, if difficult, prophetic book set within a time of severe political turmoil in 8th century Israel. Kings are dying, alliances are being formed, a showdown with the Assyrian Empire is imminent, and within this historical reality, the people of Israel have become rebellious and unfaithful. They have even included worship of other gods into their normal routines. All of this informs the well-known image of Hosea's marriage to an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and the birth of their kids. Much like his own family, the book of Hosea tells a one-sided love story of a God who, despite all evidence to the contrary, will not give up on his people. Join us as we explore the depth and radical faithfulness of a God who won't let go in the book of Hosea. We've been doing a sermon series on the book of Hosea, and you guys are all set up for week seven. Can you believe it? Week seven of our Hosea series. The text for this evening might throw you off just a little bit. I'll be reading tonight from Matthew chapter one and Matthew chapter two. Matthew chapter one, beginning in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. 
Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. The word of God for the people of God. So if this seems as an odd segue into a sermon series on the book of Hosea, if you have perceived that from this reading of the Christmas story, you are right. Nice work. There's a bit of a disconnect here in our sermon series on Hosea, but the text that we're looking at tonight has, has ties back to this um, story in Hosea. It's not just a Christmas story. This is a story of Matthew's use of the Old Testament. Matthew, one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew opens up the New Testament as we have it. Matthew is very much concerned with the Old Testament. And throughout the first few chapters, we hear repeated often, thus fulfills the word of the prophet. And then he'll go on to quote scripture that is relevant to what's happening in the life of Jesus. Even before that, Matthew begins with a stylized genealogy that takes us from the time of Abraham up to the birth of Jesus, demonstrating that Matthew sees Jesus as a fulfillment of the Old Testament story. In other words, if you are to understand the New Testament and if you are to understand the story of Jesus at all, the New Testament authors are begging you to know something about the Old Testament story. This gets me going. The American church oftentimes does not necessarily invest a lot of time and energy into the Old Testament. We like to jump in and see what Jesus is about and see the stories and the miracles and hear the teachings. However, what Jesus is doing is not in a vacuum. It is completely rooted to the story of Israel that has preceded it in the first two-thirds or so of our Bibles. In order for us to understand Jesus, we must understand something about the Old Testament. The reason why I'm, I'm going back to Matthew is because over the past couple of weeks, we have read some stories in the book of Hosea that inform our understanding of Matthew and inform even our understanding of Jesus and the gospel. We are not tonight just looking at Matthew's use of the Old Testament, even though that is exciting in and of itself. We are looking at Matthew's use of Hosea. There's one text, I don't know if you caught it, but towards the end of the story when Joseph is warned in a dream to take his family down to Egypt because Herod is wanting to kill Jesus. Herod has this real um, authority complex, I guess you could say, where anybody who is rivaling his kingdom and rivaling his power and, and would potentially take away his throne must be ended. When Herod hears that there is a king that has been born, he is threatened and wants Jesus to die. But an angel of the Lord warns Joseph to take his family down to Egypt and await the death of Herod. The text then concludes, after the death of Herod, they are to come back because out of Egypt I called my son, looking back to this text in Hosea chapter 11. Now, just a word on context. As we have been looking through this book of Isaiah, we need to understand a couple of things. There's one very important note that we need to know in order to understand what in the world Hosea is talking about. Because as we talk about each week, context. 
right? Ancient Near Eastern context, understanding Hosea in his specific moment in time to hear what God is teaching and instructing his people. This is very important for us. And as we see how this plays out, we will then be able to note what Matthew is doing with this text. So first, a word on context. For us, I think this is important uh, to note, there were two kingdoms at the time when Hosea is prophesying. We have Israel in the north and we have Judah in the south. If at the end of this sermon series, that's one of the things that you have taken away, great, because this is missed on so many different, different levels a lot of times within the church. We have Israel who has their own king and their own political alliances and their own place of worship. We have Israel as its own political entity, and we have Judah in the south with its own king and with its own uh, place of worship and with its own political alliances. They're two separate kingdoms, and Hosea is ministering to the people in the north specifically as they are moving in a very quick pace right towards their exile and destruction by the hand of the Assyrian Empire. Okay, we're going to make sense of this in a bit, but all you need to know right now is we have Israel in the north and Hosea is ministering to these people in their specific moment with their specific kings, with their specific political alliances, and Judah is in the south kind of doing something a bit different. Hosea chapter 11 then with this focus upon Israel and how wayward they have been, how they have been moving away from God consistently over time, how they have been going their own ways. The text says, when Israel was a child, this is God speaking, I loved him and out of Egypt, I called my son in the text, this is not prophetic in the sense of looking forward to a moment in Israel's history. No, this is actually looking back to a climactic moment in their history, namely the Exodus, when the people of Israel were in slavery and oppression and God has split the sea and led them out into freedom and life and hope. God says, Israel was a child. I loved him and out of Egypt, I've called my son. For the nerds in the room, the only other time in the Old Testament when this uh, metaphor of sonship is used for Israel is in the book of Exodus. Around this time when God says, Israel is my firstborn and I will deliver them and I will move them out of slavery and oppression into freedom and hope and life through my servant Moses. God says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt, I've called my son. The story continues. The more I called them, the further they went from me, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and they burned incense to idols. This is an important motif throughout the book of Hosea because the people seem to be engaged in foreign pagan worship. It's not just about Yahweh. It's not just about the God of Israel. Instead, they are engaged in the fertility cults of the day and trying to incorporate other aspects of pagan worship into their life. And God sees that and says, they keep going away from me. They're sacrificing to the Baals. They've burned incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim. That's a code word for the north. That's a code word for Israel. I taught Israel to walk. I took them up in my arms, but they didn't know that I healed them. I gave Israel everything. I was right there with them, shepherding them from birth through their awkward years into maturity, and they didn't even know that it was me. 
I led them with bands of human kindness. We talked about this a few weeks ago. These relational ties that have been built. When parents really get it, when their kids really understand that they are loved and cared for and can trust the parents to have conversations with them. When the kids show up, the 13-year-old kid says, hey, mom, can I talk to you about something? That is indicative of the bands of, of this familial love that has been built over time with kids where they, where they understand the commitment of their parents. God says, I led them with bands of human kindness and cords of love. I treated them like those who lift up infants to their cheeks. Again, that image is striking. You guys know a, a sweet, smushy little baby and how great it is just to nuzzle them a little bit. This is the image that we have here of what God is doing to his people. He bends down to, to them and he feeds them. God, the one who is transcendent over all, stoops down to love on his people, Israel. Yet Israel forsakes their God. Israel goes in the opposite direction and begins to move uh, in a different way, scorning the love of God in a sense and, and living in their own rebellion and recalcitrance. One scholar says, when Hosea, speaking for God, as prophets do, says, out of Egypt I called my son, he isn't predicting something that would happen hundreds of years in the future to one person Jesus, Hosea is reminiscing, looking back hundreds of years to the time when God rescued his son Israel from Egyptian slavery. Hosea is using this familiar image of the most climactic moment of redemption in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible when God leaves a ragtag group of slaves who he calls sons and daughters into freedom. And Hosea is getting his people to remember that moment of their history so they will not keep going away from God. He's looking back to this climactic moment and trying to uh, inspire the imagination and right the ship of these people who are going in a different direction. He's appealing to the past. He is not predicting the future that Jesus would fulfill 700 years later. Again, Peter N says, Matthew used Hosea's words in a way that Hosea absolutely did not mean, and in a way Hosea would never in a million years have understood. Today, we would call this reading into the text what we want to see there, and this is exactly what Matthew is doing. His faith in Jesus drove him to adapt Israel's story to speak about Jesus, even if Jesus is off topic from the point of view of Hosea's words. Let's pause there for a moment and let's, let's all catch up and get to the same place. What this guy is saying is Hosea was not looking forward to this moment in Jesus's life when the family would go down to Egypt and then they would be rescued and come back up. Matthew is in a sense, I'm going to say something that's going to hurt. Put your toes underneath your, your bodies here for a moment as I walk on by. Matthew was distorting the plain sense of the Bible. Matthew was adapting. That's a nice word. He was uh, manipulating the story to be one that is about Jesus. 
And if Matthew had a conversation with Hosea and said, hey man, this is what I'm going to do with your story. You know the bit about you looking back to the Exodus? Yeah, I'm going to take that and apply it to Jesus when him and his dad and his mom, they go down to Egypt and they try to escape this crazy king who wants to kill him. And then they come back up to Israel. Is that cool? And Hosea would say, uh, not really what I had in mind, but maybe, okay. What's happening here for Matthew is we see fancy word, Matthew's hermeneutic. Say hermeneutic. Hermeneutic, the way that he is reading this passage, the way that he is looking back to this Old Testament and how he is, he is interpreting it and applying it. For Matthew, his hermeneutic, fancy word there, you can impress your friends if you're ever in a party situation or just at the water cooler at work. People are going to be talking about LeBron. Where's LeBron going to go? You can just say something about, well, I don't know, but Matthew's hermeneutic is Christocentric. If you want to get super fancy, go one step farther and say, I think Matthew's hermeneutic is Christotelic, from the Greek word telos, which means purpose or goal. The, the purpose or goal of Matthew's reading of the Old Testament is moving in the Jesus direction. What do you think? That would be a great moment, I think. For me, just text me and tell me. You won't be able to talk to anybody else at your workplace for a while because I think that you're crazy weird, which you might be. We've got to be able to read those social cues, even if we want to have this conversation, okay? Matthew's hermeneutic. It's Jesus-focused. It's Christocentric. It's centered around Jesus. It's Christotelic. It's moving us towards Jesus. It's focused on Jesus. You could even look at it in, in this way. Because Jesus changed everything, Matthew sees Jesus everywhere. I want to be cool enough to wear glasses like these. I'm not. Okay, you've got to be a certain type of person. Laura is, is, is acknowledging that I'm not quite that cool. But this, this hermeneutic is the glasses that Matthew is wearing to see his world and to read the Old Testament and then to, to derive meaning from it. And for him, it is a Jesus frame through which he is seeing the entire Old Testament and the entire story of Israel. Everything in his life and everything now that he is, is reading and interpreting, it's about Jesus. You can almost say, that Matthew is this crazy person that sees Jesus all over the place and he's going back to the Old Testament and misreading it a bit in its context and applying it to Jesus and his life and ministry. Hold on to that because we're going to come back to this in a moment. The other reason why I wanted to uh, bring up the, the book of, of Hosea here and, and reading it through the, the lens of the Christmas story is because last week we looked at the poetry of Hosea 5 and 6 and, and the underlying um, historical moment of the Syro-Ephraimite War that was informing these chapters in the book of Hosea. This moment in Israel's history that seems to be underlying the poetry of these couple of chapters that Hosea is talking about and, and preaching to his people. Just by way of very brief review, when Hosea is prophesying, when Hosea is preaching, when Hosea is ministering to the people, their political empire is in shambles. It's, it's, it's so chaotic and there's, it's so tumultuous in this moment. There have been kings that have died and then people have asserted themselves to the throne and they've been assassinated and then somebody else assassinates them. And, and then we have all these uh, 
political leaders that are being assassinated and in the periphery of what's going on in Israel in the north, according to their kingship. On the outskirts of that, we have Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, on the warpath, moving to the southwest, trying to take over all of these little towns. And this is affecting the people of Israel and what they are seeing happen around them. Their political empire is, is, is crumbling, and we have on the outskirts here Tiglath-Pileser III, who is the, this Neo-Assyrian king who is, is trying to take over the known world and was doing a pretty good job of it at this time. And as this is going on, there's more political intrigue in, in the north in Israel. And eventually, we have a king by the name of Pekah in Israel who is reigning and ruling. And he says, forget this. TP3 is on the warpath. We can't stop. And because we are small and we are piddly and we have no chance of stopping this person. So what we need to do is we need to go into an alliance with Rezin of Damascus and we need to form an anti-Assyrian coalition. TP3 will smite us on our own, but if we can rally the troops, perhaps we can stall his powerful war machine that is coming our way. And what this ends up introducing in a moment of uh, Israel and Judah's history is something called the Syro-Ephraimite War, where we have Israel and Damascus in cahoots, and they try to pressure Judah in the south to form this coalition to stop the world power at the time, Tiglath-Pileser III. And what we see here is from Israel's frame in Hosea 5 and 6, the, the preaching of Hosea is geared towards this because he views this as a terrible move. He says, blow a horn in Gibeah, blow a trumpet in Ramah, sound the warning at Beth-Avon, look behind you, Benjamin. These are all towns in Israel, and they are seeing what could potentially be the onslaught of TP3 and Judah in the south moving up to destroy them. Says Ephraim or Israel is under pressure from its enemies. Ephraim's rights aren't protected. This is because Ephraim chose to pursue worthless things. As we talked about last week, the worthless things that Israel is pursuing is this alliance with other people to attempt to stop TP3. Okay, now what does any of this have to do with the book of Hosea and Matthew? Great question. Last week, we looked at a text in 2 Kings. Today, we're going to look at a text of the same event in Isaiah chapter 7. If any of you have spent any amount of time with me, you've heard me go off about this passage of Scripture because this, in my estimation, is an important example of how we need to place the Bible in its historical and literary context in order to understand what in the world is going on. So in Isaiah chapter 7, and some of this will become familiar to you as we go, it's set within the Syro-Ephraimite war. It's not from the perspective of Israel in the north. It's from the perspective of Judah in the south and what they're going to do to stave off Israel and Damascus, pressuring them to join this coalition. 
It says, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, who was the king in the south in Judah, when Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin, that guy from Damascus, uh, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel. Remember, we have Damascus and Israel. They're trying to put pressure on the king of Judah to join their coalition. It says that they marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, with with Israel. In other words, Damascus and Israel are in cahoots. They've started a coalition. So the hearts of Ahaz and Judah and his people, they were shaken. They were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out, you and your son share Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. This is an ominous name for Isaiah's kid. It's, It's a precursor for destruction and for exile. Take this kid to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, this is what Isaiah the prophet is saying to the southern king in light of this potential um, invasion of Israel and Damascus coming down. Say to him this, be careful, keep calm, do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of the king of Damascus and the king of Israel who are pressuring you. Ahaz, do not lose faith in your God. Do not join this alliance, Ahaz. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son, in other words, Damascus and Israel, they've plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Listen, if Ahaz isn't going to do what we want him to do, if Ahaz isn't going to be the puppet king in the south that we need him to be in order for this anti-Assyrian coalition to go, we're going to put our own king on the throne and get rid of Ahaz altogether. This is what he is fearful of. Yet, This is what the sovereign Lord says about this. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you don't stand firm in your faith, Ahaz, you will not stand at all. This is what the Lord is saying. Do not worry about this anti-Assyrian coalition. I got you. Ahaz, do not worry about these people because I have a plan for you. They're threatening these two smoldering stubs. They're coming down to destroy you, but I am in control. Ahaz, do you believe it? If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. This is like the the hinge of this passage because what God is wanting Ahaz to believe is that God is in control and that God will protect his people. I am going somewhere with this, okay? 
Again, the Lord speaks to Ahaz and says, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And Ahaz says, I can't do it. I'm not going to ask. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah says, well, guess what? It's happening anyway. Here now, you house of David. Here now, you people in the south. Here now, you've, uh, the, the, the kingly line in Judah. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, Ahaz, a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Every Christian in the church knows this passage about Jesus, but not many know this passage about the anti-Assyrian coalition and Tiglath-Pileser III and Ahaz not wanting to join up because he's so afraid, but Ahaz also not trusting that God has a plan for him. But what God is saying now to Ahaz is, listen, man, I got your back, and this is the sign that you will see in your lifetime. A virgin will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. The text, it continues, it says, he will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. It's a funny phrase, but it basically means this kid's going to be two years old uh, when, when, he, when this is happening. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings, Damascus and Israel, Aram, the land of those two kings that you are so fearful of, it will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Ahaz does not believe what's happening, yet the sign that is coming to, to this moment is a virgin in the Hebrew, a young woman of marriageable age will have a kid and we'll call that kid God with us. Now, in this text, what we see is the prophet addressing his immediate context because that is what God does. It's not good news to say, hey man, the state of American politics is a bit of a mess right now, but in 700 years, it'll be cool. Hey, man, I know that we're really struggling with this immigration thing, but don't worry. 700 years from now, it'll be fine. That's good news, right? The prophet's job is to raise up and to speak about something that's happening in the moment. And this is what Isaiah is doing. He's saying, Ahaz, all these things that you're fearing, these kings that are invading your place, don't worry about it. God's got you. He's going to give you a sign. And before this kid is two years old, it's all going to be taken care of because God is in control. One scholar says, it is the rule rather than the exception that Matthew's quotations of the Old Testament ignore the meaning of the passages in their context. While there is some uncertainty about whether Isaiah 7, the passage that we just read, is talking specifically about a girl who is a virgin at the moment, or whether she is a young married woman, if she is a virgin, there is no suggestion in the context that she will still be a virgin when she has her baby. 
Further, the context suggests a birth to take place in the near future, not, some, uh, not in some centuries' time. Again, Isaiah's promise about a girl having a baby whose birth would signify that God was with his people in the crisis they were going through was not a promise about something to happen in seven centuries' time, nor was it a prophecy about a girl who would still be a virgin when she had her baby, nor about a baby who would turn out to be the very embodiment of God. No regular Jewish interpretation in Jesus's day would have understood the passage to refer to the Messiah. When Isaiah is talking, no one was anticipating Jesus. No one was anticipating a virgin birth. No one was anticipating what we have received in the history of humankind. Do not sit there and misunderstand what I am saying. Do not sit there and say, this guy's saying the virgin birth didn't happen. He's not at all. What I am saying is Isaiah was not looking forward to this moment. He was looking forward to a moment in the near future because that's what prophets did. They addressed the moments here and now. Now what happened with this is when Matthew looks at this passage, and begins to see what has, what has unfolded in human history. He's reading the story differently than Isaiah is because Jesus has changed everything. One scholar says when he looks back to the passage in Isaiah 7 about a virgin giving birth to this person who would be God with us, it said that Matthew's eyes must have popped out of his head because he sees Jesus in that. Knowing Jesus' story and knowing what Jesus has done and knowing Jesus' history and knowing that Jesus was born of a virgin, he looks back to this passage that no one in Jewish interpretive history would have thought was about the Messiah, and he says, that's about Jesus. Because the lenses through which Matthew is reading the Bible are centered upon Jesus Christ as king. And everything that he now sees, he sees through the lens of what Jesus has done. Do you understand what I'm saying? You're not going to leave here thinking, that pastor doesn't think, about the, vir doesn't think the virgin birth happened. Because that's not what we're saying. What we are saying is, Isaiah wasn't looking forward to that moment. But there has been such a fulfillment that no one was anticipating. It was a surprise fulfillment in the history of humankind that Jesus shows up and defies all the odds and becomes everything that we need him to become so that we can have life and hope through him and him alone. And yes, I do believe he was born of a virgin. I just don't think that that's what Isaiah was talking about back in this context. But the glasses through which my main man, Matthew, is reading the text is looking to see Jesus in it. And I have to wonder, for those of us in the space tonight that call ourselves Christians, for those of us in the space tonight that claim to have been transformed by the living Christ, for those of us in this room that claim to be following him, are we wearing those same glasses where everything that we see is through the lens of what Jesus has done in human history and for us as individuals? Are we so enraptured by what Jesus has done for us that it has changed everything in our lives? Or are we just going along? Are we the type of people 
that have been changed and transformed so that our fancy word hermeneutic becomes Christocentric or Christotelic or just Jesus-focused where we see him in everything and want to please him through everything that we say and do. So when we think about immigration, is it through the lens of Jesus or is it through the lens of our politics? When we think about racism in our culture, is it through the Jesus lens or is it through the lens of our experience and our prejudice? So when we think about homelessness uh, in, in this country and in the world and just in Salisbury, is it through the Jesus lens or is it through the lens of what makes us comfortable and what we can help maybe if somebody shows up? I've had a couple people show up in these last couple weeks just, just to my car and, and wanting change. Is that enough? Is that where we are? Is that what we do? Here's 50 cents. I feel good. Jesus would be pleased. And my, my glasses see that. Is that how we do? Are we people that are going to bigger and better and, and bolder things? When we think about shootings, when we think about Annapolis, do we view it through the lens of Jesus? Is our hermeneutic driving that where we want to see change in some tangible way, even if that's just us having conversations with people? Or do we not even really care because we've been so desensitized to all of the death in our country. These are big issues that we have to think about, but it goes uh, beyond that. When we think about our service, when we think about the ways that we engage in this community, is stuff like summer lunch on the radar? Okay, let me step away. I'm not trying to put on a guilt trip here. I'm not trying to wear that pastor hat where I make more people show up. I think that we're pretty good on volunteers for what it's worth, okay? Just come back over here is our service and the way that we engage in this community. For some of you in the room, you might be like me, and you feel like just a square peg in a round hole when you show up with those kids. You know, I'm not Mr. Outgoing, and we might feel that this might not be our thing, but we are, are we allowing Jesus to move us into what might be our thing? Has our cul-de-sac, yeah, I'm going to go there, has our cul-de-sac been reached for Christ because our hermeneutic is driving us to see him as the end goal in everything that we do and in every conversation that we have and in every interaction? And I don't want to turn this into some cheesy manipulation. I just mean, has Jesus transformed us enough where we are able to invite folks into the lives that we live and the hope that we have through him? On the most individual of levels, does our character in the way that we portray ourselves online demonstrate a Jesus-shaped hermeneutic that is driving us towards holiness and also engaging the world for him? Or is this where we just get to post those memes that tick people off? Or is this just where we get to be snide and stupid through our comments is this just where we get to go in secret and look and do whatever it is that we want to do? Or is it moving us towards Jesus? And finally, in our relationships, is the transformation that we have um, received and are receiving through Christ, is it, is it also impacting the relationships that we have, whether it's with our spouse or our kids, whether it's with our friends and coworkers? Are we allowing 
ourselves to see Jesus in everything. I don't want to champion some kind of um, hokey application where I stand up here and say, you only should be listening to K-Love and you should only be wearing Christian t-shirts and you should only be going to Christian businesses. This is not what I'm talking about. But has our life been so radically turned upside down that we, like Matthew, can see nothing other than Christ? This has all sorts of implications for how we read the Bible that I don't want to go into today. What I want to think about today is seeing how excited Matthew gets over these Old Testament texts that demonstrate that Jesus is fulfilling them. Have we too experienced that? And are we living in light of what he has done for us? Or are we content just to receive it and call it a day? Thanks again for listening. We invite you to join us in Salisbury for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. See you next week.